and welcome back to Open Airways, a podcast on medicine, health policy, and life in the bluegrass. I'm Jessica Adkins Murphy, but you can call me Jess, and I'm an ER resident doctor in Kentucky. I'm trying to have a better understanding of the ways that legislation and life outside of the hospital affects our health and the health care that we can provide. The title of this podcast is Open Airways because one of the first things that we do in emergency medicine when an incredibly sick patient comes in the door is to first assure ourselves that this patient has an airway that is patent, meaning open. And similarly, one of the first issues that we need to address when uh, addressing public health threats are to ensure that we are able to have open and honest conversations about the issues at hand. So just as essential as it is for a patient to be able to communicate with their provider is a constituent communicating with their legislator and a marginalized person being able to communicate with those who hold the power to make change. In the first episode, we discussed miscarriage bereavement leave and how hard it is for working people to get protected paid time off to grieve reproductive loss. And in the second episode, we discussed addiction treatment for incarcerated people and the way that some leaders in our detention facilities are trying to improve this lack of equity and care. For this third episode, I also wanted to discuss something that has come up in my clinical work recently but also something that might allow for a, a little more levity and a little more uh, of a, an upbeat conversation related to public health. But first, um, I want to share the story of a patient interaction that brought this to mind. And um, this is actually a really sad story. One of my patients came in after initially uh, presenting with a viral illness. He tested positive for COVID, so um, it was attributed to that at first, but he worsened and eventually had to be put on mechanical ventilator to breathe. While he was intubated, he had lots of blood tests done, and one of them was an HIV screen, which was positive. On further testing, it was found that it had reached the severe stages, so was officially known as AIDS. We started to realize that his lung infection may not just be COVID, but instead pneumocystis pneumonia or another lung infection that people who have AIDS are more vulnerable to. Unfortunately, for a time, he did worsen and had a seizure, which was concerning to us that he might have a brain infection caused by Toxoplasma gondii, but this is an infection that people who have AIDS are especially vulnerable to. We got an MRI, and it did look like he had a brain infection caused by Toxoplasma gondii. So ultimately, he uh, did improve with antibiotics, and he made it off of the breathing machine. He, he woke up in the ICU, and um, talking to him as he became less confused, I broke the news to him that he had HIV. And because it had been undiagnosed and untreated for so long, it had begun to uh, present in the most severe stage of AIDS. He was really shocked to hear that. Um, he was a male who had relationships with women and men. Um, I don't know if he used the term bisexual for himself, but um, as a male who had sex with men, he was at higher risk for HIV. 
I thought this was something that was widely known among men who have sex with men. So I was surprised when he asked me, how does someone get HIV? Maybe he was just in shock. Maybe he wasn't thinking clearly. But my heart breaks for this man. I would think that in 2022, every male who has sex with men would be familiar with the risk of HIV. But this patient seems to have been failed by our education system, and specifically our sexual education system. The curriculum that, in my state, only requires that people be taught that abstinence is the only way to prevent STIs and pregnancy. If he had a more comprehensive sex education system, if we had thought about the ways that different challenges with our identities intersect with our risk for STIs and pregnancy, would things have been different? Could his infection have been prevented? Could knowing about his sexual risk factors have alerted him to the need to get tested and lead him to either take pre-exposure prophylaxis to prevent HIV infection or to treat his HIV infection and bring him down to a non-transmissible level so he wouldn't have infected his partners, so he wouldn't have ended up in the severe stages with AIDS and lung infections and a brain infection that causes seizures. We can't afford to leave our young people in the dark when it comes to some of the most important decisions they'll make in their entire lives. And that brings me to our next topic. Sex ed in Kentucky public schools leaves a lot to be desired. Um, mine was spotty at best. I remember in fourth grade, we got kind of a puberty talk in which the girls were split up from the boys. We all sat in a room together with some women who weren't our teachers, school nurses, something like that. And, um, they let us ask questions about, um, periods and wearing deodorant and when's a good time to shave your legs. And that actually was a good experience in which we were allowed to ask anonymous questions and and get answers from someone other than our parents. Somehow it felt less embarrassing for me. Then in middle school, the discussions of actual sex started to take place. And in my experience, that meant that some local high schoolers came together as a group and gave a talk to us middle schoolers about abstinence. I remember they came in and sang a song to us, and we all sang along, Um, and it was like, it's okay to talk about sex. It's okay to think about sex. It's okay to want to have sex, but sex can wait. I've tried to find this on the internet and I've not been able to. I would love if someone could find this curriculum for me. It is so cringy and just secondhand embarrassment, I think, to this day. (laughs) That along with the Miracle of Life video, which is actually a Nova documentary put on by PBS that I went back and watched it. It was actually a really interesting documentary about the development of a fetus. And the documentary culminates in 
the only part that I remember being shown in school, which was a vaginal birth. And you could make the argument that this was shown to us to destigmatize and demystify birth and um, that this is a valuable part of sex education. But for me, it felt like something that did not have any context and instead was just very graphic and frightening and honestly felt a lot more like a scare tactic designed to frighten people away from wanting to have sex. And this leads into the high school sex ed experience, which is also just scare tactic after scare tactic. In my experience, I remember uh, PowerPoint presentations of just like close-up photos of genitals with uh, very advanced stage genital warts and um, syphilis shankers and just designed to terrify you from having sex. And I do not remember any discussion about condom use. Um, there was certainly not any discussion about homosexual sex. Um, and no discussion about oral contraceptive pills or IUDs, anything that was related to uh, harm reduction. It was all just very abstinence-focused and designed to instill fear. I posted on the Open Airways Pod Instagram account requesting that you all send me your sex ed experiences um, from your public school. Um, and I want to kind of share some people's stories because the diversity in our experiences is unreal. Just by the numbers alone, there was a pretty even split between those who said that their schools were more abstinence focused in their education and those that were more comprehensive and would address things like condom use and even LGBTQ issues and things like that, which were pretty progressive for the era between like 2003 and 2010 when most of my friends were in middle school and high school. But those that shared more details on their experience were mostly those who had been to comprehensive programs because there was a lot more to share, obviously. Um, I want to read one from someone who went to middle school and high school at public schools in Virginia. Safe sex was a big component of it, and sex ed started as early as middle school. It was repeatedly brought up that the only way to ensure 100% that you would not contract an STD or get pregnant was through abstinence. This was from 2001 to 2008. Sexuality was described in three categories, heterosexual, bisexual, and homosexual. But still the emphasis was that you could contract infections regardless of your partner preference and that safe sex, condoms, dental dams, etc., are the only way to ensure safer sex, but still not 100%. We also discussed different ways to express healthy intimacy without intercourse from kissing to mutual masturbation. See, I giggle when I read that, and I think that's because I did not have proper, like, frank conversations about this growing up. Anyway, since teen pregnancy spiked in the 70s to 90s, we learned all about pregnancy from conception to childbirth, and if we fell, felt we were truly prepared for that um, regarding finances, maturity, life goals, etc., now that I think about it, it wasn't even called sex ed. It was called family health. And as far as consent, we discussed that no means no. If things went further without consent, report it to a trusted teacher, nurse, or faculty. LGBTQ was not really discussed, but my school was progressive, and we knew teachers and students who are members of that community, and anyone who bullied based on a hate crime definition, like sexuality, race, was severely reprimanded. 
That being said, I distinctly recall a group of four girls, they were juniors when I was a senior, making a pregnancy pact and actually following through with it. This was right around the time that teen moms gained a huge spotlight thanks to MTV's show. I remember the majority of us thought their decision was a naive one and recognized the gravity of their pregnancy on their future, probably more than they did at the time. I think this is like a blast from the past because I remember pregnancy packs being a really hot topic. Like this is around the time of Secret Life of the American Teenager and it seemed like there was something new that parents were scared of every week between sex bracelets and then pregnancy packs and secret languages that they didn't understand that kids would be using on AIM. (laughs) But I love that you had an environment where um, LGBTQ students were totally accepted and bullying was more frowned upon than being gay, for example. The only person I knew in middle school who was gay and open about it was absolutely bullied for um, expressing his feelings to another guy in in our middle school. I'm going to describe another experience that uh, one of my friends had who uh, went to middle school in a rural area of Kentucky. In middle school, we had a seminar that our parents had to sign a consent form for us to attend. They taught us about condoms, safe sex practices, consensual sex, and resources if needed. They still gave the old abstinence is the safest, but they did a great job explaining to kids aged 12 to 14 that the likelihood of teenage pregnancy is exponentially higher without proper education and understanding. It's something I would teach my future kids as well. I think that is so wonderful and heartwarming. Um, This was probably around 2005 to 2008 or so, and... That was really progressive at the time, and it's nice to hear a story that totally breaks stereotypes. Another person wrote in to describe their experience growing up in southern West Virginia and says there was an entire program that got contracted through the West Virginia schools to travel to them to talk about abstinence and how expensive it was if you accidentally had a baby. This is an interesting... Interesting tactic, like focusing on the financial aspect of having a baby and the burden that it is. I mean, I think there's a place for that, especially for like these girls that allegedly had like pregnancy packs and things like that to bring them back down to earth. But really, I think one of the main things that we are taught when we are instructed in medical school on how to counsel teenagers is that they do not have that kind of critical thought. Not that they're incapable of critical thinking, they are. But to try to frame things in a way that requires them to think five years ahead and think about the logistics of raising a baby is just not effective um, and does not jive with the way teenage minds work. But it's interesting. It's, It's good to hear that some of you had a very comprehensive experience, but unfortunately, a lot of people had instructors who didn't go above and beyond the bare minimum, which was to teach that abstinence is the only way to 100% prevent sexually transmitted infections and pregnancy. That disparity in what we learn is a huge problem because the people that are going to be left behind the most are the people who have other intersecting facets of their identity that make it harder to access this kind of information or that put them at higher risk for certain sexually transmitted infections. 
for example, if you live in a very rural community that um, wouldn't allow you to have these conversations outside of school with your families, you don't feel comfortable bringing this to your um, faith-based community. If you've grown up in an abusive household or one where your parents suffer from horrible addictions, you aren't going to be having these kinds of conversations with someone, especially if they don't make you feel safe. People who grow up in abusive households are probably the people that need to hear these conversations the most in order to hear about healthy boundaries and how to access post-exposure prophylaxis if they are sexually assaulted. But they're the least likely to have these conversations at home. Imagine other ways that intersecting identities can make it harder to get the care that you need. If you are an LGBTQ person living in, say, a rural area where there are not many people who are openly queer, it can be very difficult to feel safe having these conversations, especially if the sex ed curriculum at your school doesn't offer you the information that you need to keep yourself safe. But across all identities and regions, the people that suffer the most when we glorify abstinence and put it on this pedestal as the only way to live your life until you find the person that you're going to marry are the people who have been sexually abused. Where does this abstinence-only education leave them? You haven't been taught about post-exposure prophylaxis. You haven't been taught about how to reach out for help or for a plan B pill after you have been assaulted, especially when some of this messaging is combined with religious overtones. It can be extremely disturbing. I know when I was in youth group, um, my youth pastor had a pie and cut it up into pieces and had someone hand out a piece of pie to one person, and then another, and then another, and then another, to illustrate the fact that by the time they found the person that they wanted to marry, there was only a small piece of them left to give. Now imagine if you were a person who had been sexually assaulted, hearing that messaging. There is less of you now because someone has abused you and taken those choices away from you or even someone who chose to have sex and did consent. That's still extremely harmful messaging. Who benefits there from that messaging? That degree of shame is not harm reduction. It contributes to the silencing of these discussions, to the point where especially people as self-conscious as middle schoolers and teens will not feel comfortable asking questions, making reports when they feel violated by others. And when they do have sex, this all-or-nothing mentality doesn't lead to a teenager who feels comfortable asking their parents for birth control or advocating for themselves in order to ensure that they have the best chance possible at graduating high school, at being self-sufficient, at having a family, but only if and when they decide for sure that they're ready. Seems pretty non-controversial, right? This matters because Kentucky's current sex ed curriculum in our public schools is not cutting it. 
We have one of the highest rates of teen pregnancy in the United States, and that's also in the context of the United States having some of the highest rates of teen pregnancy of all industrialized countries. And teen pregnancy matters. In the United States, teenagers who do not give birth have a graduation rate, uh, earning their high school diploma by their 22nd birthday, of about 89%. That's compared to 38% of teens who do give birth at age 17 or younger, earning their high school diploma by age 22. It puts them at risk not only of not graduating on time, but not graduating at all. And not having their high school diploma puts them at higher risk of poverty, chronic illness, and unsafe relationships for the rest of their lives. This is also while sexually transmitted infections are becoming more and more resistant every year. Over time, as they are spread and then either treated with antibiotics, especially if they're inadequately treated, like if people don't know the importance of completing a full course of antibiotic, that increases the risk of more and more resistant chlamydia and gonorrhea in our population. And we're already seeing that happening. And the risk of an untreated chlamydia and gonorrhea infection can be seriously dire. Women who have untreated chlamydia and gonorrhea can end up with pelvic inflammatory disease, which is um, a severe infection of their uterus and their pelvic organs. And it can cause them to be critically ill, requiring admission to the hospital. And the inflammation and everything can cause scarring that results in infertility. Teenage boys can also suffer painful infections that can risk their own fertility, and they can also unknowingly spread the infection to other young people even though they're asymptomatic. This is all in addition to HIV, which probably needs a podcast episode all on its own. It remains an active threat among sexually active young people not using barrier methods of protection. And so many young people aren't aware of the availability of antiviral treatment that can cause active infections to be to an almost undetectable, untransmissible level. In addition to our challenges preventing and managing teen pregnancy and STIs, we consistently earn the highest rate of child abuse cases in the country. For at least three years in a row now, we've been number one in the country for child abuse, and it's even more cases are probably going unreported of child physical and sexual abuse. So we are in a crisis of child safety and teaching them about sexual boundaries and the manifestations of abuse, both verbal, psychological, um, physical, and sexual abuse are all things that we are currently neglecting in our sexual education curriculum. And now should be the time for us to act on this and make it something that we provide to all children in public schools, not just those who have the parental support to be having these conversations on their own. But instead, we have abstinence-only education, a curriculum that was initially gained steam throughout the 80s and 90s as the AIDS pandemic brought sexual education, safe sex, and abstinence into the evening news and made it something that people thought about on a regular basis. 
Um, conservatives launched a movement to rebrand sex ed as abstinence ed, and this was funded through the 1996 Welfare Reform Act during the Clinton administration. And through this program, the federal government directed millions and millions of dollars to abstinence education programs for the first time. Since then, that program has used over $2 billion of taxpayer money for abstinence-only education, and it provides the foundation for the abstinence-only education that we have in our current system in Kentucky. Our bare minimum is established by Senate Bill 71. Despite the aforementioned evidence that Kentucky is not meeting um, the, our goals in terms of sexually transmitted infection prevention and pregnancy prevention, um, we still rely on 2018's Senate Bill 71, which required sex education curriculum to include abstinence as the goal for young people and the only certain way to avoid pregnancy, STDs, and other health problems. Curriculum must also include that maintaining a monogamous relationship is the best way to avoid STDs. So under Senate Bill 71, Kentucky public schools were not required to educate students on contraceptive options, and this left students who were sexually active or were the victims of sexual abuse to be undereducated or misinformed on these topics, more vulnerable to teen pregnancy and serious infectious diseases like HIV, syphilis, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and it also neglects to educate them on post-exposure treatment options which includes medications that can prevent HIV and pregnancy and infections like gonorrhea and chlamydia when taken immediately after exposure. These are tools that we use far too often in the emergency department. And so many children that I, I meet who have been sexually abused, um, they come into the emergency department and they're shocked that such a thing as post-exposure prophylaxis for pregnancy and STIs exist. Um, but this is so important to teach them about because these post-exposure medications must be taken as soon as possible for maximum efficacy, something that you need, especially in cases of sexual assault, um, rape, incest. Current curriculum requirements also don't educate students on the social and personal elements of sexuality like consent, healthy relationships, gender identity, and sexual orientation. So when we leave these topics up to the instructor to determine whether they should be included or um, they often end up being treated as an afterthought if they're included at all. It's evident that what we're doing is not working and it's high time we incorporate comprehensive and age-appropriate sexual education in Kentucky public schools. We need to set a new standard in support of healthy teens, positive relationships, and to help us build stronger families through doing so. For the past few years, House bills have been introduced and then die in committees when they tried to address this topic. But my favorite one that's been introduced so far was introduced in the 2022 General Assembly this past month. It was House Bill 13, 
and it proposes comprehensive sex education that is age and developmentally and culturally appropriate that would cover the um, changes of human development, puberty essentially, human anatomy and reproduction, just kind of the nuts and bolts of how sex works, but also goes into healthy relationships based on mutual respect, learning about consent, decision-making skills, um, encouraging communication with their parents and guardians, uh, faith leaders on uh, sexuality and intimate relationships, on the benefits of abstinence, but also the use of condoms, medication, and birth control to reduce the risk of sexually transmitted infection. Of this bill have included a caveat where a parent can submit a signed letter asking that their child be um, removed from these discussions. If they don't feel that it's developmentally appropriate for their child, there are exceptions available in those cases. But as it is now, there is a high likelihood that huge sections of our state are missing out on this education. And this kind of education that's age-appropriate and comprehensive is supported in official policy of the American Medical Association and the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine, our state's high rates of teen pregnancy, the impending threat of antibiotic-resistant STDs, and the safety of young people should be bipartisan concerns that warrant support from our public school systems. Our legislators need to continue to push for legislation that addresses sexual health education, protecting as many students as possible, while still allowing for parents to have specific religious or cultural exceptions. Those legislators that are striking down this legislation year after year should be challenged to consider the 62% of teenage mothers who will not graduate high school by age 22. Consider the missed opportunities to teach teens who have been sexually assaulted that they have options to prevent HIV infection and pregnancy before those things occur. And they should consider that Kentucky remains the number one state in the country for rates of child abuse and the lasting vulnerability those children will have in relationships with their family and with partners throughout their teenage and adult lives. The burden of those consequences should rest on the shoulders of the legislators who are striking down comprehensive sexual education year after year. But it doesn't seem to, so it's up to us to hold them accountable. Okay, I swear I really thought it was going to be a lighthearted kind of laughing at myself uh, discussion on sex ed in general and my own experiences with my um, poor <laughs> sex ed experience that I had. Um, but then I get alone talking about heavy stuff and I just kind of spiral and get really serious and dramatic. So. <laughs> I guess that's kind of the tone I'm establishing. I probably need a co-host. Um, 
but until I find one, uh, these will probably continue to be monthly rants about whatever is bothering me slash making the news. But I want to hear what you want to hear about. Um, write into me at openairwayspodcast at gmail.com and follow Open Airways Podcast at Open Airways Pod on Instagram and Twitter and interact with me. Let me know what you're thinking about and um, who you might like to hear uh, talk on the show. Thank you so much for um, giving me your time. Because these come out on such an irregular basis, um, it's been about once per month over the past three months, the best way that you can ensure that you hear the next episode is to subscribe on Spotify. Um, But also following on Instagram and Twitter will work as well. Until then, this is Jessica Adkins Murphy saying, may the world be your patient.